You are listening to National Security Law Today. We're back at National Security Law Today, your source for growth in the area of national security law during the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine and all of the time. I'm Elisa. Today we are mourning the loss of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Remarkably, she was only the second woman to serve on the United States Supreme Court. And I'm Yvette. I think it's particularly poignant to have this cast um, uh, celebrating the accomplishments of women in the law, specifically national security law, but broadly um, uh, after uh, Justice Ginsburg's uh, passing. And we, uh, we mourn her and um, we wish her family the best. And I'm Nicole. Quick disclaimer, because lawyers need and live by disclaimers. The lawyers on NSLT are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. All right, and I think uh, we're certainly going to talk more about Justice Ginsburg, but I think Justice Ginsburg uh, would certainly celebrate uh, what we're going to talk about today, and that is we're moving forward on bringing you 19 amazing women in national security law. Uh, And today we're joined by a friend of the cast, former chair of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, Cindy Ryan, who also held the position of general counsel at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Cindy, thank you for coming in. Well, thank you, all of you, my friends. Uh, This is quite an honor. And I must say that it is a great loss to lose Justice Ginsburg. Um, I was more uh, in line with uh, Justice Scalia's decisions, I might say. But I did get to meet Justice Ginsburg not too long ago. Um, It's so amazing when you meet her to feel (laughs) that power coming out of such a small body. Uh, She had quite the presence. Well, she was remarkable. And Cindy, to your point, I've always had great conversations with you about things on which we don't necessarily agree. And I think that's a wonderful quality that Justice Ginsburg had, as evidenced by her strong friendship with Antonin Scalia. So um, thank you, Elisa. I I would like for you to um, basically explain sort of the basics here. Um, Some of us sort of grew up thinking about uh, satellite imagery and uh, what what NGA does, but can you explain um, the authority that NGA has and what its role is within the intelligence community? Yes. Um, Well, first of all, it was established in 1996. Its original name was the National Imagery and Mapping Agency, NEMA. It was known as NEMA had a name change around 2003 to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and that was done by General Clapper, who later became DNI Clapper, because he felt that only three-letter agencies really get notice in the intelligence community. So National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, you note, has four words, but the hyphen is between geospatial intelligence, therefore making it a three-letter agency. So that's important because it's intelligence and geospatial intelligence, uh, geospatial information too. So it was established as a Department of Defense Combat Support Agency, which means it's a Title X authorities, and it's an element of the intelligence community, which means it also has Title 50 authorities. And which always makes it fun, uh, which is nice because they don't conflict. 
Uh, they're actually very complementary uh, and very robust. The mission of NGA is to provide geospatial intelligence. Um, and geospatial intelligence is imagery, imagery intelligence, and geospatial information. Um, and basically to provide that to all the U.S. federal agencies. It has quite the broad, it isn't just supporting the Department of Defense, isn't just supporting intelligence missions, but also things like homeland security, uh, for example, FEMA and national disaster response. It has a, quite a broad missions that it supports. Um, so it was a really fun place to be. It also, uh, it was a lot of classified imagery, but a lot of unclassified imagery too. It also, it is the agency that tasks, coordinates, retains, analyzes, and disseminates imagery uh, intelligence. Um, doesn't fly the satellites, which the National Reconnaissance Organization does, but it does have handle the imagery that comes from the imaging sensors. The other mission that it has, uh, which is under the title 10 uh, DOD uh, non-intelligence, is uh, it is in charge of providing maps and charts and geodetic information for navigation around the world. And it also provides aeronautical charts. Wow. So I will say I had the opportunity to go to the NGA for a conference and I had not, I did not know about this agency before. Um, and I was, uh, this is quite early in my career, and I was very surprised to learn that there were classified maps because it doesn't seem like that's something that should be classified. Um, so I like, and I also just, I guess I didn't appreciate it um, because I, maybe I hadn't read enough uh, spy novels, but didn't appreciate how important that work was. Can you just talk a little bit about the impact of this important mission? There are some, some maps are classified because the resolution of the imagery is, is better than what is allowed commercially. And therefore it protects, you might, you know, as we talk in the intelligence community, protects sources and methods. And it also protects, there's some kinds of maps that are devolved from information that isn't the normal, you know, you can see it like a photo. There's infrared, there's radar. Um, so the source of the, of the information that went to the map may be classified. So for example, um, uh, the raid on bin Laden. NGA provided imagery uh, to the Department of Defense. It was uh, an informant that basically said they thought bin Laden was there. It was the imagery showing an analysis that's very specialized at NGA, helping to confirm, they felt could confirm that this was the bin Laden compound. So we're very proud of that. There's a mock-up of that in the NGA headquarters. But that's just one of the examples. Um, that's why you would have classified imagery because of the resolution, the analysis that went with it, and the, the fact that we were looking at that particular location. Um, there's some other things that NGA has done. Elisa, um, uh, I know that you uh, are particularly interested in this as well as I am, is I have been fascinated by looking at the imagery of the Arctic Circle. Um, my office used to always laugh at me about this because I just thought this is fascinating. Um, watching the Arctic Circle, watching the ice cap melt, and watching, watching land appear, 
there are six major countries that are competing for the minerals and the all the elements that are going to be presented and it's going to be you know impact our safety of navigation up there um but you have canada you have russia um you know you have scandinavian countries but there are a lot of countries that are going to compete for this i i see this as a huge international opportunity but it also could be an international conflict the other big thing we did for example was we the um Deepwater Horizon in 2010, you remember the big oil spill by BP? Immediately, NGA started imaging the oil spill. So every morning at our 8.30 operations intelligence briefing, we watched this blob. <laughs> they, it, it always looked like a blob. We watched it travel. We watched its impact. We watched how deep it was uh, to a few feet. And then we actually sent attorneys uh, down to the BP uh, center, not attorneys, we sent an attorney down, but we also sent down analysts to help that command center um, track uh, the, um, the flow so they get help with the response team. So that was, that was very exciting because that involved a lot of legal issues that we weren't um, normally dealing with, dealing with a commercial partner like that. But we also had the, the big issues um, of the day we had, um, you know, we're looking at COVID-19 now, but we had Ebola and Ebola Department of Defense uh, deployed out to some of the, where we thought the origins was of Ebola and NGA sent analysts with the, um, with the Department of Defense Army team that went out there. And, and how does NGA get involved with that? Well, NGA gets to track data. So you have all kinds of data sources. It can be geographic which is important but we also can bring in data open data um, like um, transportation routes who's traveling from these countries who traveled at what times and literally not names but being able to do those pinpoints and seeing the networking um, anticipating where there might be a blow up or again of, of the ebola a horrible horrible disease um, so um, that was very different. Uh, so NGA, even though it's an intelligence agency and it, it, in its intelligence missions cannot collect on that on US persons except for certain circumstances, um, it, has, it, it does take a lot of data, open source data, and be able to combine it. And um, uh, for example, national response to a disaster response. Just some of the things that they do. That's quite a <laughs> that's quite a broad spectrum of uh, of issues that you worked on. Um, let's kind of like dig dig a little deeper on what you did specifically as the general counsel. Like, what was a day in the life of? Well, a day in the life of the general counsel. You know, when you're general counsel, you know, you think about it in a general counsel's office. You're not only in charge; you're in charge of all the legal issues for the agency. And so you don't, don't just have the mission issues. Um, NGA um, has a lot of contract issues, um, uh, licensing issues, and you buy a data and you buy certain things. It's usually for a specific use. Um, so you have a lot of contracts. Um, there are, um, you have personnel issues, you have EEO cases, 
you have fiscal law issues, but you know, how are you using your money? Are you using it according to your authorization for that particular type of account? And then you have to run an office. Basically what you do, you're not just a general counsel, you're also in charge of all the people in your office, lawyers and non-lawyers for their careers. Uh, you are also a senior leader in the agency, so you're always one of the top people in the agency and you're called into a lot of meetings, a lot of decision making, which is very healthy, I think, for an organization. And I think it's very helpful. The council, because I did not report, I reported to, but I was not, my supervisor was not the head of the agency. I, I reported, I reported through the Deputy General Counsel for Intelligence, Ileana Davidson, who was there for nine of my 10 years uh, as the General Counsel. And so I think they look at you as a neutral party. You just come in there and you tell it like it is and you often end up having to tell people things that other people don't wanna tell people because it's not a very, not gonna be well received. I was also the, I was also the designated ethics official for the agency, so I ran the ethics program, and I also ran the intelligence oversight program, which we basically started from scratch when I became the general counsel. So a lot of different hats, and of course you're a community member, so we took it very seriously to be very involved with other intelligence community law offices, because I feel that if the lawyers can at least have a good relationship you may not always agree, but at least you understand each other's positions and you're advising your directors and deputy directors and top management, then they're going to get together and it helps them make decisions. So my day would be, could be anything from looking at a high profile, we have an EEO case, uh, we have defend a case, we could have a contract problem, we would often get um, contested on our contract decisions. Uh, we won all of our, our decisions that were appealed to the GAO. But I always tried to think, what is it that the agency is doing looking ahead and then getting my staff and saying, this is where the agency is talking about. This is the new thing they're working on. We need to go in there, find out it in detail. Let's sit down and talk about it. And we would whiteboard it in our office. I bring a lot of different people from our different divisions and bring them in and say, you know, contracts and mission and administrative law and go, okay, let's, let's give guidance up front so we're not making mistakes in the end. I like to uh, do the right thing first. And we started writing legal guides, not in response to a specific question, but it would be on a particular topic and all the different legal issues that went around with that. So we started drafting legal guides. So, uh, City, that's amazing, and it sounds like you brought a lot of architecture there to the general counsel's office, and I'm sure they appreciate that. Uh, it's better than having to reinvent the wheel or figure out what the legal question is every single day. Um, and I admire especially the idea of, of trend anticipation. Um, but you didn't just walk into that role right out of law school. Why don't you talk about um, how you got that job, like what literally how you got that job, and then what prepared you for that job in your career? Because you've, you've done a number of really impressive things before you arrived at NGA. Well, thanks for that. Um, well, I was had stepped aside as chief counsel at the Drug Enforcement Administration. I was doing a special project 
but I was looking for another job. I feel you shouldn't stay in a job so you know too long. And I felt at DEA, I've been really the chief counsel for eight years uh, so far, and I was looking for another job. Kind of hard to find, um, but I am a member, uh, an active member of the Alpha Sigma Alpha National Sorority, and I have a. Uh, alumni chapter in this area that I helped to form, and one of my sorority sisters, Pam, was a contractor at NGA with IBM, and Pam walked into one of our sorority um, parties, and she said, General Clapper is looking for a new general counsel, and I knew who General Clapper was. Uh, I had talked with them on a few occasions, and I said, really? She goes, yeah, the ad's going out on Monday. That's how I found out, so I just went on USA Jobs and um, that's what I did. So I was interviewed. My final interview was with the DOD General Counsel. So I, um, I was selected by, by him, Jim Haynes at the time. So that's how I got that job. But um, so how did it relate to DEA? I had done a lot of work with the intelligence agencies starting in 88, 89. Uh, when I was a DEA, I was just a staff attorney. I had 10 years that, 10 years of prosecution behind me. I was a state prosecutor. I was a federal prosecutor. I'd worked on the Hill for about 15 months. So I was a strict criminal law and procedure person. But I was a new kid on the block, and the new big thing was CIA and Department of Defense having counter drug money, and they wanted all of DEA's information. And so I just, my bosses just told me, you're in charge. You, you just figure this out. <laughs> and I just had to go figure it out on my own. Not a whole lot of case law there, but I did start going to the standing committee's breakfasts with my boss, the chief counsel, once in a while. I started meeting people. Uh, I got connected with people in Department of Defense and uh, DIA, NSA, everybody was wonderful. Coast Guard, and I also became the counsel for the uh, El Paso Intelligence Center down at the border. And so I just learned, and so I became very uh, knowledgeable, you might say, of the authorities of the intelligence community uh, and the Department of Defense. And I've always admired them, but I was never part of the intelligence community. Um, so after 9-11, um, my DEA administrator wanted me, to, um, wanted me to look at how could DEA, maybe part of it become part of the intelligence community so they could have a quote unquote seat at the table. And so it's around 2004, 2005, when the Office of the Director of National Intelligence started standing up, um, was about the time the NSC had Condoleezza Rice, National Security Advisor at the time, had agreed to the Attorney General's request to examine how could DEA become part of the intelligence community. And there's a lot of different scenarios I did a pro-con, I helped to negotiate. Um, that was just really, really important to me. And I thought I had the expertise of anybody in the agency to do it. So that's why I stepped aside as chief counsel and that's what I did. And then um, this NGA, uh, you know, I had never heard of NGA. They were very, you might say, insulated um, uh, OGC. I found out after I got there, but I, I had read online what they did and I applied for the job and I, I wanted to jump into the IC. I thought I could actually bring some bring something to them. 
So you are really describing a 24-7 kind of role. Can you talk a little bit about um, work-life balance? How did you manage to do this? <laughs> I think my answer, um, my answer might be different than my husband's. The, um, <laughs> I worked about a 10-hour day. Um, I would get to work because we always had to have, I always had an eight o'clock stand-up meeting. We had an 8.30 agency operations intelligence meeting you had to be at. So you always had to start by a certain time. And I left around seven at night, but I didn't take work home. Not because it was classified, but because once I left the office, my brain clicked into coming home uh, and things I had to do there. I very seldom worked on weekends. I might work later on a Friday night, but I won't work on weekends unless I just had some reading to do, some reading to catch up on. Very seldom that I work on weekends. Even though it is a 24 seven, not too many times that I get called in the evening, unlike DEA, you know, operations around the world got called when things went bad. Um, so it was good. I was very fortunate. I had, at NGA, I had, and at DEA, I had terrific deputies that were trusted by the director and deputy director, which believe me a little bit. I mean, even though I took my phone, I have, you know, would go to the beach, I would still look at my phone eight times a day and you know, all that. But, um, but really to be on the spot and be able to get away a little bit, my deputy and my office were great and they could handle things. They didn't always need me there. Well, Cindy, let's, uh, let's, we're in a time where big issues are part of the national dialogue once again, pandemics, elections, election interference, but I imagine you saw a lot of big issues from where you were at NGA, and I think you might be a really good person to comment on the trends you see down the road in a time of an, uh, you know, sort of uncertain future. Yes. Um, so I, I think one thing that is, I think just data, open data and big data are going to continue and social um, networks are going to be, continue to be big issues, uh, privacy issues. Um, I don't know if that horse is really out of the barn, frankly, uh, with social networking. Uh, I think that in cybersecurity with, with China, Russia, whatever, we, we still are going to have big challenges there. But I think forward is I've been working on space law. Now, you know, I got interested in this with NGA. I am not a technical person. The, but we started contracting with, for commercial imagery um, and data with like SpaceX. SpaceX was new at the time. And I got to talk to all these people and their new general counsels and they're just doing startups and realizing and NGA, as I said, was very forward leaning. So NGA started looking at, they weren't afraid of the commercial industry that was growing in analysis and big data and you know the open data because NGA really likes to absorb that and into imagery, they said, we're going to take advantage of this. We can do this. We can handle more open, open data and really push the open data part. So we started contracting with them. And so getting to know them and watching that industry starting to really blossom, um, you could say launch, but that would be like a bad double in touch, uh, is that 
uh, really, I think that that to me is the big, the big new area. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate it. It has a lot of different parts to it. National security, yes, we are relying on, look, we, uh, SpaceX just, was it SpaceX just launched the first U.S. astronaut? You know, first time U.S. astronaut has gone on a U.S. vehicle, what, since 2011 or something like that? So we're relying on commercial entities to do our national space missions. And so you have to think about how they, all the security that goes along with that and the missions you have, you know, businesses that are, are there for commercial entities, not necessarily to serve the United States. They've done great partnership, but there's, I think there's a lot of risk. The commercial entities um, are, are really uh, expanding in this area. We have foreign entities. Uh, we have a crowded space field up there in low Earth orbit. Uh, Starlinks are going up. Um, like every twice a month now, there's going to be tens of thousands of little small satellites out there. Um, and so we have space junk. We do not have the best um, ability to know where all that space junk is and to avoid it. N not only our own, but for other in other countries. There is a lot to do there. We do not have common norms and understandings across across the world uh, and China and Russia are just sending up more and more uh, space launches as well as some of our allies are as well. You have the stand up of the space command, the space force. Um, we have the space council under this administration, which is really you know focused on this because they saw the importance of this. Uh, so we've made a lot of advances in the last few years. This is just gonna continue to grow and I think people should realize that um, Department of Defense does, intelligence community does. It's in their national in the national intelligence strategy as a focal focal point. Um, so I think this is really going to just continue to grow, and it's very exciting. It's very positive for the United States. But we do not really have. We have old treaties. They're 51, 52 years old. They're very general. Um, I think people are looking like what will happen if we end up, it could be another, you know, the space domain could be another, a war domain. Um, and there's a lot of, lot of things that could hurt our satellites. And we have some national satellites, they're called national satellites, that have handled the classified intelligence sensors that could be in jeopardy if we don't learn how to protect them very well. So that's what people are looking at now. For our listeners who might be interested in this topic, I would just remind uh, people that we did do a podcast with the Woomera Group, which is attempting to establish some norms, kind of like the Talon Manual uh, on cyber. Um, and we can also hyperlink that for those who might be interested in that. Yeah, yes. and uh, I think it we would be remiss if we didn't uh, mention that today NASA outline a plan for the first American woman to be on the moon by 2024. So all of this space talk uh, is quite uh, prescient. So thanks for um, offering that uh, facet of um, your work, Cindy. So we'd love to ask you uh, about uh, our 
one of our major um, target audiences, which is the law student. You know, someone's listening to your words of wisdom, you know, probably in a Zoom class wondering what her profession is going to look like. Um, And we'd love for you to share, you know, what advice you might offer for um, someone in in her situation based on your experiences in the law and leading a major government legal office? Well, I never thought, I, I think first is law students have to realize that while you listen to me, you're hearing me after 40, 41 years of practicing law. You know, I didn't start as a general counsel. I started out in my dream job Um, And I decided when I was 17 years old, I was going to be a prosecutor, not just a lawyer, but a prosecutor, which was extremely unusual to be a lawyer in my, in that day and age. So I just went step by step. So there are some basics I think that help you. First of all, very quickly, you establish a reputation. You have to decide what, what do you want your reputation to be? You know, you want to be honest, you have integrity, you live up to your word. Um, and you know your law. My motto in my offices has been know the law, find the way. Because you're, you're advising clients and what does your client need? So I always was know the law, find the way. So you have to know your law. So just be a good student, learn as much as you can. The other thing is keep current. I know, you know, with COVID, everybody's inside. Um, but not only, you know, you learn your classes, but keep current in what the law is doing now. Just go on, so much is online now. Um, keep current in the news, keep current in the issues, and then read up on those issues. Read the Supreme Court cases when they come out of the Secret Court cases in the areas that you're interested in. Two is keep connected um, virtually. I'm always impressed with people who reach out. They reach out to me on LinkedIn sometimes and say, hey, can I talk with you? Uh, I have a few people uh, after our podcast that we have done and said, um, I need your help. And so I've helped them with the resume and they're applying for some internships with the intelligence community. Uh, so don't be afraid to reach out and don't be afraid to say thank you and keep in touch with people that you're connecting with. Um, just let them know, let them know how you're doing. And uh, I think mentors always really appreciate that. Uh, Three, keep your mind open to opportunities. I never really thought when I was at DEA staff council that I was going to like trying to get to know the intelligence community or CIA or DOD at all, Department of Defense. It was new. I was comfortable in my criminal prosecutor knowledge, criminal law and procedure background. And I was asked to do foreign operations and intelligence sharing. I had not a clue. I did not know the Fourth Amendment could apply outside the United States. But in 11 months, I went to the Supreme Court on the Verdugo case, which was the Fourth Amendment application outside the United States. And so you never know where it's going to lead. Just do what you're asked and do your absolute best at it. You'll never know what you're going to end up liking and you'll never know where it will lead. And for women, if we're, you know, some women just are a little reticent to reach out, to um, sit at the table. So I wanted to just offer a couple books for um, our women listening. And they're also good books for men as well. It, um, it's not like they're just exclusive to women, but I think they're um, really helpful. Uh, one is Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. 
The other one is called The Confidence Code. Fascinating book about women, how we think, um, how we sometimes don't help ourselves. Uh, but also, in uh, there's a lot of science in it as well. And it's a very fascinating um, book and well worth the, um, the read. And so I think that while I started out in a, my career, women were unusual being in the field of law, particularly in Delaware, a very traditional state. Uh, uh, state. Uh, now there are a lot of women, but that doesn't mean that um, we aren't always helping ourselves the best that we can. That's amazing advice. I, I, um, I hope that our young women are listening and our young men too, to what you have to say, but young women in particular who frequently doubt themselves in situations and don't believe that they merit a place at the table, shouldn't apply for certain jobs, shouldn't ask for certain opportunities. That's a really lovely thing to hear. And I have read both of those books and I agree with you. Uh, I think that's great advice. Cindy, thank now, you so much. Can I just say one more thing? For Absolutely. women who have been in the profession or been you know, working for some time, keep in mind that there are women behind you and you need, you know, you should help young men and women, but keep in mind when they come into a room and they're the briefer or they're people with the subject matter expertise, invite them to the table if they're not already taking their place. I think that's right. And pull them along. Sometimes they need to be pulled along as you probably did when you were younger. Um, and it's the right thing to do. Uh, then we also uh, are leaving a place better able to manage its mandate than maybe before we were there. Um, and we're leaving the next generation of brain power, good ethics, um, and, and thoughtfulness about our legal system, which everybody doing this podcast uh, holds near and dear. Cindy, it's so awesome to have you on. I'm really glad. We've wanted to do this for a while. I felt like we were chasing you around Northern Virginia, but we finally caught you. Uh, and I hope, uh, I'm gonna commend this podcast be shared with a lot of young women, even those outside of national security law, because your thoughts are extremely special and very helpful. That's very nice of you to say, Elisa, thank you. I'd love to thank all of you listeners out there um, for tuning in to NSLT. We'll be back next week with more content and more amazing women in national security law. And we'll talk a little bit more about Justice Ginsburg's decisions in some national security law cases. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments and feedback. You can find us on Twitter at ABANATSAC or send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep you informed and give you context on fast-moving legal developments during this time. And don't forget, the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their... ...together, even though we're apart, even though we have different views. Let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.